Holy Word of God. Please open your Bibles now to the Gospel according to John the Evangelist. We'll read from the first chapter of John's Gospel, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of the true and living God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth comprehendeth it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them which believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness of all we received in grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And this is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Art thou Elias? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? And he answered, No. Then said they unto him, Who art thou? that we may give an answer to them that sent us. Why sayest thou, what sayest thou of thyself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. And they which were sent were of the Pharisees. And they asked him and said unto him, Why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor Elias, neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you whom ye know not. He it is who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Beth-Abra, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Amen. Praise God for that precious portion of Scripture. May something the glory of the Son be revealed through it to us. This time let us now come before the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Great. 
great and eternal Son of God, this one who is in the bosom of the Father from eternity, of whom the Apostle wrote, we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We praise you, most high Son of God, for this is the confession not only of those who saw you in the days of your flesh when you walked the dusty roads of Galilee, but it is the confession of each and every one of whom it is given the power to be called the sons of God. Each and every one who is adopted into your family by sovereign grace, each one who confesses your name in truth, they receive you as they are, as you are, and that is as the Son of God. This is a, a truth that is solemn. It is very great. It is something that defies our, our puny minds. That from eternity, the one true and living God should be Father and Son, together with the Holy Spirit, one God, undivided. And yet, there are these distinct persons. We address you, most beloved word, the only begotten word, who indeed was born of the Father from eternity, without beginning. And you are the one who spoke forth this world into existence. And you is life, and your life is the light of men. You enlighten every man that cometh into the world. All the knowledge we possess, all the understanding that we have, no matter how faulty and tainted with our carnality, everything of truth, it comes from you who is the true light of the world. But most especially wondrous living word, we know that you are the light also, especially to those who are in spiritual darkness. You do reveal the glorious Father who begot you from eternity. You reveal his will of salvation for sinners. You reveal the depths of our sin and the way of escape from them in the blood of your cross. You seal unto us by your blessed spirit the eternal love which you have for your own. You enable us to know the paths of righteousness in which we may walk. Not merely that we may obey rules, but that we may have fellowship with you, the Son of God. This is glorious. How can we say anything of these things? Would it not be well, O Lord Jesus, if we would but have these scriptures read and then sit for hours just in meditation upon them? We can never scratch the surface of the depths of the wisdom that are found here. And yet, how terrible that we who have heard these words so often should just glaze over them and not think anything more of them. We plead that it would not be so, that something of your glory would be revealed unto our hearts also this day. We are a small congregation. We are a needy congregation. But we are a congregation separated unto you by covenant. You who are the mediator of the new covenant have purchased also this church with your blood in order that we may offer you true and acceptable worship, that we may enjoy fellowship with you and through you to the living God. We plead that on this first day of the week, with all of the troubles and cares which cling to us, that we would be lifted up into heavenly places, that we would cast aside every distraction and that we would delight in you. We lift up, Lord, those in our precious congregation who have great health difficulties difficulties and challenges. We pray for uh, Ray Koopman and for Martha Dyer 
and for Jane Vanderplug, and for all those, Lord, in our congregation, you know them who are weighed down with physical afflictions or spiritual burdens or providential circumstances. You know, Lord, those who grieve loved ones. You know, Lord, those who are being led down difficult paths also of, of troubled consciences and, and regrets and sorrows. And Lord, you know also our sin. You know how we have transgressed your laws of which we have read. And you know those things which we are reluctant to confess even unto you. But Lord, how wonderful it is to pour out our hearts before such a Savior. To come unto Jesus Christ is a most blessed thing. To lay down all of our burdens at your feet is most refreshing to the soul. You are the great physician who heals also from every contaminant that we would pollute our souls with. And so we pray, O blessed physician, heal us this hour and this day. We pray, Lord, that you would be with every member of our consistory. We thank you, Lord, that you have set apart um, both Bert Vermeulen and Ren van Meppelen Shepping and Pastor Hank Bergsma and to this office. And we do pray, O oh Lord, that you would strengthen and equip each one for their calling. And we do ask, O oh Lord, that you would especially be with our brother, Pastor Hank, who after a whole year of preaching your word has finally taken a single Sabbath to sit under it. And we thank you, Lord, for giving him the strength in order to persevere in this service. And we pray, Lord, build him up and encourage him. Give him, give him many souls for his hire. May it be that his proclamations in the churches would shake the gates of hell and would cause many wonderful effects to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask, O Lord, that you would be with his dear wife, Gerda, and that you would strengthen her in her health challenges as well, and that this married couple in this season of life would know much refreshment from on high. We lift up the cause also of our nation at this hour, O Lord, and we look around and it appears that in the entire history of this country has there ever been a time of such division and confusion concern anger worry fear distress misunderstanding hard words difficult situations and it's affected the highest levels of power and the lowest ladders of society no family no church no community is unaffected by it and we see the protests taking place in our nation's capital and cities around this nation and we see the response of the leaders and we see how how anger is is appearing to boil over and we pray O lord that the prince of peace would give soothing balm to our nation at this time. We are a guilty nation which has transgressed your laws. We are a wicked nation which has turned away from your gospel. We are a backsliding church community which has not sought you and grieved over our worldliness. In every respect, O oh Lord Jesus, we need you to intervene at this hour. We pray, Lord, for Prime Minister Trudeau and we pray for his good, for his health, for his safety, and for his wisdom to rule not according to his own pleasure, but as he is in truth a public servant and a servant also of the Most High God who has placed him in that office. Help him, Lord, to come to himself as never before as the prodigal son, seeing, Lord, the situation that has been wrought and may it please you, Lord, to bring him to the place where in humility he would be enabled to speak the words that would bring a lack of division and a true unity in true justice as defined not by the wisdom of men but by the revealed law of the living God. And at this hour, Lord, we pray, Lord, for the protesters 
that they would conduct not themselves with haughtiness and disrespect, but as true patriots in reverent submission to the laws of the land, but likewise in bold proclamation of the truth. And that at these times there would be a reconciliation in church families, in human families, in society at large, Lord. Where hatred has abounded, may love abound. Where sin is abounded, may grace much more abound. At this most dark hour, we need the light of the world. And so, Lord Jesus, shine your light, not but because we deserve anything, least of all, we in this church, but we plead these things out of love for our nation, out of desire for the salvation of souls and for the glory of your great name. Will you please hear us for the sake of your heart of love and grace and mercy? Good shepherd of the sheep, shine thou from above. Amen. Let us now sing from... Psalter 243 stands as one to four. Beloved congregation of the Lord, as we begin our message this morning, I wonder if you would turn in the back of your Psalters to page 41 and look with me at the words of our catechism, beginning of Lord's Day 13.
Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for his sake. Well, beloved congregation, one of the interesting services that our congregation plays to the community here in London is that every week uh, there is a homeschool co-op that meets in the lower level of our building here. And before they go to different activities and and lessons, I have the privilege of addressing those children from the scriptures. And one of the reasons that's a a very unique privilege is that while the homeschool co-op is governed by the the principles of our our church, the people who come there and, and benefit from it, they come from a wide variety of backgrounds, some of them reformed, some of them other kinds of Christians, and and some of them not Christian at all. And so as an opportunity to come to the the Bible and to share some of the basics of uh, the gospel, it's a very unique privilege. And last week, uh, we were discussing some of the miracles of Christ, his feeding of the 5,000, and his turning uh, water into wine. And And we asked the children, well, well, what explains this? How is it Jesus can do such things? And we're able to lead the the children to to this conclusion. These things are to remind us that, you see, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. It's It's a lesson that is, if you like, part of the very basic grammar or the ABCs of Bible lessons is something we've been instructed in also from our own childhoods as well. And because of the very familiarity of that with the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, we perhaps need to be refreshed on the depths of what that means. The great significance of this for our salvation. That is what our catechism is so good at, not only in instructing the little ones, but as well in solidifying truths that we already hold dear and and pointing us to how we can apply those things also in our own lives. It drives us really to the, the, um, the most central teachings of the Bible. And we've come here to Lord's Day 13 on our series through the doctrines of our catechism which especially concerns the sonship of Christ, that he is the Son of God. It's gone to that part where the catechism is uh, expositing, really, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the Son of God. But it also relates this uh, glorious truth to the reality that the Christian likewise is a child of God. That's how it's phrased. It's it's trying to draw us into the depths of the truth as well as the application of it. And so in order to see how these things come from the scriptures and as well as to how to apply them more personally to ourselves, I'd like to see how the first chapter of John, which we have read, especially draws this out. You'll recall that as we read through this, it essentially contains two great testimonies. Testimony of one John, the baptizer, who said there in John chapter 1 and verse 34, I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. That's perhaps the most obvious thing about this chapter. It's setting us up up for the story of of this book and and the witness of this great prophet. But as well, there's also the testimony of another John, John the Apostle himself, who is narrating these things and giving us something of the truth behind what this name means. And so uh, 
With these considerations, let's consider this great theme, the sons of God. First, the natural son, and second, the adopted sons. The sons of God. First, the natural son, and second, the adopted sons. Well, you notice how our catechism begins here. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God, since we are also the children of God, because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son, is the answer that we have. And what we see here is not only a title to, uh, to this glorious person, the Son of God, but also a very important theological word that's included as well, the word begotten. You see, our confessions and all Christian confessions throughout the history of the church, they affirm the begottenness of the Son of God, or what's called his eternal generation. It's not only the case that Jesus is the Son of God because of anything that happened when he took flesh and became man. But rather, from eternity, he has a relationship to God the Father, a relationship of begottenness. He is the begotten Son. And we saw that in a number of verses in this chapter, which we read, did we not? There, for example, in verse 14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you see the the word come up again there in verse 18. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared him. And of course, the phrase comes later on in this book in the most famous verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And at this point, it's perhaps uh, important to get into something of the recent history of Bible translations. Because if you'd be reading from uh, certain translations, like the ESV or the NIV, that word may be absent because historically, uh, the King James translators uh, translated that word, benogenes, in, in a very accurate way as describing a relationship of begottenness. So I'm a father, and I have begotten children. That is sort of the human concept that is uh, carried up in this word, but then is applied in a much greater sense to a divine relation. And the reason why that was changed is because of a bit of a confusion about the, the way to understand this word monogamous. Uh, for a while, it became popular in, in seminaries and, uh, to, to just translate this only son and to, to basically rob it of its uh, significance. But if you would look, for example, at a new translation that's being uh, published this year, the Legacy Standard Bible, it would be uh, basically coming back to what the King James and the New King James both affirm, and that is the historic Christian uh, translation here. And what is this relationship of generation, of begottenness. Well, in a sense, we're talking about a bit of a mystery, aren't we? Perhaps if you're a father and you look at your sons and daughters, you can say, well, I can see there's a family resemblance there. Indeed, there's a, there's a sense in which these children have come from me and they've inherited my nature. They, they are human and I am, am human. And there's even the, the family resemblance and the physical characteristics and personality that they've inherited from, from me. And there's, there's something that's very different, of course, when we apply this to God, because we know 
from Deuteronomy 6, that God is one. He is one God. He is undivided. And yet, and in some mysterious way, there is this sense in which the person of the Son, who shares the one being of God with his Father, comes from his Father from eternity. He has his origin in the Father, not as though he ever began to be, but rather he has always been begotten. That is a mystery that is beyond our human comprehension, but it's spelled out not only in the the actual accurate translation from the Greek, but also in what uh, John is spelling out here in his teaching about this Son of God. You'll notice that it's applied there in verse um, 14, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. So this person, even before he was made flesh, before he took on a human nature, this person that's called the Word is referred to as the only begotten of the Father. And when we see that word, word, it's capturing something that's very important about our Savior. It's revealing something about his relationship to God the Father. And if you want to get sort of the sense of the logic here, it's good perhaps to read earlier on in this chapter in the very early verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, if there's anything uh, clear in the whole Bible, it is this, that these verses are teaching the full deity of the Son of God. That when we would speak of Jesus as the Son of God, we are not referring to him as lesser than the Father, and certainly not less than God. Whenever we would say that Jesus is the Son of God, we are ascribing to him the glorious attributes that are described here. That he not only was with God, but was God. That he has the name God. That he created all things. All things come from him. That indeed, he has life. Life not of another, but of himself. And that life His existence is the very light of men. Any knowledge or wisdom that the image bearers of God possess, it comes from this one, the Word. But why the word, word? Why why is that used? Well, in the Greek, it's it's the word logos, and it it actually does have a, a, a very rich significance. It can mean a number of of different things based upon the context. But uh, historically, throughout the ages, how this was understood, um, especially by our Reformed fathers, as they they reflected upon it in the Christian tradition and and the church fathers and, and everything, the way this has been understood is this is the word that is generated by a mind. So... You are, each one of you, listening to me, you are rational. You are created in the image of God. You have minds. And so, if you would think of anything, your rational soul, by the wonderful working of God's design, it will conceive of a thought. You will not just look at the world as a bunch of shapes and forms. No, you ascribe meaning to things. You think. And so, in the mind is generated or conceived 
a thought, a word. A word that is ascribed to a thing. And so you see a chair, and the, the mind thinks chair. Or the mind looks at a man or woman and thinks man, woman. That is the, the wonderful power of an image bearer of God. To think, to conceive, to generate thoughts. And so the, the picture here is it's kind of working from an image bearer of God with a, with a mind that can generate a word in the, in the mind to what is happening from eternity in the life of the one God. That from eternity, the mind of God generates a thought, a word. And that word is not, uh, is not merely of himself in a, in a total sense. No, it comes from another. It has its origin in this one that is thinking and conceiving of, of the word. And so uh, this is, is really the, the theology behind the word begotten. That when we are to uh, regard Jesus as the Son, though he is equal to the Father in his deity, yet we are to see him as from the Father as a person. And on this is, uh, there's a, a great number of things that, that hang upon, upon this. Most, uh, most seriously, the guarding of the church against error. It's not a coincidence that in the last century, when people have been using Bibles that have rejected the accurate rendering of the Greek here, of the only begotten Son, that this doctrine of the generation of the Son has, has kind of been forgotten, though it is preserved in our confession. Indeed, I was reading... a. Commentary on the, Bel- on the Heidelberg Catechism here uh, from a Christian Reformed minister is, is usually quite sound, but, but here he, he was almost rejecting the doctrine wholesale as though it was very antiquated. But the reality, the reality is that if we don't hold to this, then there will be no biblical basis for distinguishing the Father from the Son. Or you'll fall into the error of thinking, well, the son became the son when he was born of the Virgin Mary. And in that way, he is not truly the son of God in the way that Christians have always confessed. Does that seem academic to you? Well, it's not, it's not so. When the Lord works in the child of God's life, we desire to know the Savior who purchased us and redeemed us, to know him personally. And he has taken care to reveal his true nature, his true personhood, his true perfection. Also in the pages of Holy Scripture, none of us claim to understand the things that we read of here, how these things can be. We have only a small glimpse into the life of God into the sonship of Jesus Christ, but it ought to move us to reverence, move us to worship. And if we are one who is received of his grace, then it must move us to great gratitude and love towards him. So that in the first place, we, we see the natural son but in the second place, I'd like to speak about the adopted sons. And that is also highlighted in our catechism here. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God since we are also called the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace. For his sake. Now, here we see the glorious truth of adoption, one of the most precious aspects of the gospel of salvation. And it's likewise spoken about very clearly in this chapter of which we read. So you will see there um, where it refers to the sons of God. It refers to the sons of God. 
Yeah, let me just try to find that, that verse here quickly. Yeah. Sorry, I should have marked that down. 12? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, verse 12. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So there we have it. The same uh, teaching of our catechism is also taught for us very plainly in the scriptures. And so, obviously, you'll find other cases uh, where the word child of God is used. But here it is referring to the sons of God, as though the entirety of the Christian family could be referred to as sons. And this is not to exclude the reality that God also has daughters, that Christian women and and girls are likewise partakers of grace. But rather, I think what John is emphasizing here, and it's also emphasized in our catechism, that our adoption always owes to the natural son. It is something that is received from him. And so for that reason, we all partake of his sonship. We are all the sons of God. And if it makes any of the, the, the lady Christians here uncomfortable, well, just, just know that as, as male Christians, we also have to identify as the bride of Christ when we speak of the church corporately. So there's, uh, there's just the, the language of the Bible, and it's, it's highlighting in different ways the glorious truths of the gospel. But what is it that we can see about this uh, truth of adoption. Well, you'll notice that what's really emphasized here that it comes by divine power. It comes by divine power. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so really in verse 13, it really is giving you three examples of what not to think when you think of one who is a child of God, one who is truly adopted. Well, they're not born of blood, right? You can't become a child of God because you're born into a particular family and have a particular bloodline. That was something that the Jews in the days of John the Baptist thought, that they're very race and nationality and history could bring them into this relation with God. Likewise speaks of the will of the flesh. And there it seems to be speaking of the carnality and sin of the human mind. It's emphasizing for us that if you would take any sinner and you would ask the question whether they can cause themselves to be a child of God, it ought, to, it ought to appear as futile from the beginning because they in heart and mind and soul are corrupted by sin. But even that is, is not emphasized as strong as what is said next. Nor of the will of man. And there, as it often is in, in Hebrew writings, as, as John the Apostle was, when it speaks of man in general, it sort of speaks of man at his best. So in other words, take the strongest man, the smartest man, the, the greatest man, and ask them this question, can you by your own power become a son or a daughter or a child of God? And the answer is no. Not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, not by the will of man, but of God. They're born of the power of God. They are indeed born from above through the power of the gospel, applying, applying the power of the Holy Spirit unto the soul, bringing the light into that dark place and translating them into 
the Son of God's kingdom of light. And all that is beautiful, but even just reflect upon what that means for you personally, Christian. You are a son or a daughter of God. It would be a great thing if you'd been born into a royal family and you had uh, a king or a queen in a, in a human sense in your family line. It would be a great thing if you could trace your line to a, a great preacher or a, a great reformer. It would be a great thing if, if you could look at your family line and see them all as godly and noble. But what of this? You are a child of God. You've been adopted into his family. It's sort of the flip side of, of justification, right? When you come to faith in the Son of God, when, as it says in this text, you receive him as he is, as the love gift of God to a perishing world, as the only begotten of the Father, as the one who is filled with grace and truth. When you receive him in that way with the heart, when you trust in him for your salvation, then from that moment you partake of his sonship. And as it were, he takes that dirty beggar with his hands outstretched, and he, God brings you to his family table. And he puts a robe of glory upon you and says, sit in this place of honor. So you should, you should always think on this whenever you would either think or speak about another Christian. Another Christian. If you would think about every single Christian in this way as a child of God, then how would it change how we speak of them and think of them and treat them? They are part of the same family. That's why we address ourselves as brother and sister. There's a unity here, a unity that comes not from blood or the will of man or the will of the flesh, but it comes from our common adoption. We've been brought into the same family. And so it is that we must, each one of us, honor the family name. Maybe you uh, have this experience sometime. Maybe you're just a, a little kid and you're, you're off at the Christian school or you're off uh, at a friend's house. And maybe you act in, in such a way that, uh, you know, where it gets back to your, your mom and dad about how you were conducting yourself. And mom and dad have to take you aside and say, well, don't you know that you're, you're representing our family and you act in that way. That doesn't just reflect upon you, but it reflects upon me, your father might say. So it is. It's, a, it's an ennobling thing to think that the way in which we act and live our lives, it reflects upon our father and upon our elder brother, the natural son of God. But it's also a very humbling thing you know, we can look at the sins of the world and the unbelievers and think that those are, are great sins indeed, the way they've been so often given over to all manner of lawlessness. But think of the least sin that a Christian commits. A Christian who's been baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A Christian who has been adopted into this family by the power of God and has received of the name of the Son of God and consider what it means to sin against such a family, to bring dishonor and, and disrepute to the family name in that way. Well, it ought to make us see that the sins we commit are, are perhaps on the scales of justice far greater than those of the world because we sin against more light and we sin against grace and we sin against a savior who has adopted us in love. But all praise be unto Jesus Christ. He is full of grace and truth, it says in verse 14. 
And they knew that. It says, they beheld his glory. There was Jesus Christ. Yes, a true man. Yes, they could touch him and hold him. Yes, he walked the streets of Galilee. Yes, he did feed those hungry. And he did turn that water into wine. But it was the very same one who spoke the world into existence. And even in the stillness of eternity, he was in the bosom of his father, in that embrace of love. And yet... He did not count that equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took unto himself this form of a servant. The word was made flesh. And so it's at times like this congregation that we must, we must fall down and say, the gospel is so great. Jesus is so perfect. He is so suitable. And he has revealed himself for no greater reason that he would be received by sinners like you and I, that we would also be numbered among his family, among the sons and daughters of God. And if it should be the case that there would be anyone here who is yet on the outside of that family table, on the outside of that family of grace and love. Do you not know that this is such an inviting family? There is room for the stranger. There is room for the outcast. There is room for even those who have rejected him countless times. Congregation, believe in and receive this, the Son of God. And then you can say in truth that it was given to you also the power to become the sons of God. Amen. In response to the message, let us sing from Psalter 302. Psalter 302, all stanzas. Let us close our eyes and pray to God.
Gracious God, we thank you for giving your Son unto the world in love and for revealing his Sonship unto us, for giving us the gospel of his great salvation and providing the power by that gospel and your Holy Spirit that we may be the sons and the daughters of God. And we ask that you would be pleased this day to instruct our minds, to warm our hearts, to guide our paths by the truths of which we have heard, that indeed these would transform our lives and bring us to that place where we may both live and die happily through the knowledge of our sin and misery, our deliverance through Christ, and the way of gratitude appointed for us. Be with each and every one for the remainder of this Sabbath day as we rest and as we worship you and forgive everything that was sinful, both in speaking and in listening. In the name of the Son of God, amen. Let us now sing from Psalter um, 426, stanzas 7, 8, and 9. We will sing from stanza 10 as our closing doxology. Now depart in peace and receive the blessing of the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.